This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. These videos started making the rounds in the UK over the last couple of weeks. Videos of right-wing British politicians campaigning for the European Parliament. The candidates, all of them are Brexiteers. They're on sunny street corners, talking to voters, sometimes even just walking from place to place. When... Whoa! Whoa! Passersby nail them with milkshakes. That's what you get for being a fascist! This became a thing. Milkshaking. McDonald's actually stopped selling milkshakes when one candidate was campaigning nearby. That same politician, he got trapped in a bus that was reportedly surrounded by protesters holding milkshakes. So milkshakes in the UK have uh, replaced eggs as the foodstuff of choice to throw at uh, politicians whose views you deeply object to. Slate's Josh Keating has been watching all this go down, anticipating the results of this weekend's continent-wide election for European Parliament. So I kind of get the appeal of the milkshake. It makes a nice stain. Like, you can see it on a person's clothes as they walk around. It's pretty visible. But, you know, I mean, there's another side to this. Josh says throwing a banana and salted caramel milkshake at a politician, it might feel good. But he worries about where all this is going. This is kind of the level we're at where people are throwing food at the people they don't agree with. And, you know, I think that there were a lot of people in Britain that the Brexit campaign capitalized on who sort of felt like their voices were unheard and they were being left out of the political conversation. And so I think when they see these people getting sort of mocked and having food thrown at them in public, I don't think that's going to win them over to the pro-Remain side. I think it's going to make them feel like uh, they're being pushed out of the political conversation and it's probably going to just harden their positions. After this weekend's EU elections, it seems like all of Europe has hardened their positions. And whether they voted for the Brexit Party or the Green Party, the only thing most voters could agree on was that they wanted change. So what's that change going to look like? And what about Brexit? Josh Keating has got some answers. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. One of the people who got a milkshake thrown at him last week is a British politician named Nigel Farage. He's been a member of the European Parliament for years. And the whole time, he's been trying to get the UK to leave the EU, which might sound strange. 
But Josh says it makes kind of sense. So the thing about European elections is they're ironically really good for anti-EU parties, both in Britain and elsewhere. A couple reasons for that. One, because they have proportional representation, which makes it easier for small parties to get on the ballot. And two, just a lot of people don't take these elections as seriously. The turnout's usually a little lower. So people kind of use it for a protest vote. So something like UKIP, which was Nigel Farage's original party, has historically done much better in European parliament elections. Well, what does UKIP stand for, just if people have, have no experience with it? The UK Independence Party. Got it. So Farage was leading UKIP, and then... Okay, so UKIP was founded in 1993. It had a long time been a kind of fringe one-issue party focused solely on taking the UK out of the European Union. Uh, Nigel Farage, a former commodities trader turned political activist, he took it over in 2006 and managed to really effectively broaden its appeal and kind of bring it into the mainstream. And he did this about like, talking about some issues other than Brexit. He kind of made it a sort of socially conservative party about immigration. There was some climate change denial thrown in. It's like all the hits are in there. Yeah. And kind of pitched it to, you know, white working class voters in Britain who felt disenfranchised, you know, despite the fact that he was a commodities trader and son of a stockbroker, he kind of cultivated this blokey man of the people image. She would, you know, get photographed, you know, holding a cigarette and a beer often at the same time pretty frequently. So the thing that's funny about Nigel Farage is that while the party is all about leaving the European Union, he was obviously representing the UK at the European Union. Yeah. Also, his wife, so his wife is German also. So he's in some way a very uh, pan-European figure. But that, but that's the thing that the European Parliament kind of gave very ironically gave a platform to these parties that are against the whole existence of the EU. Uh, you know, Farage became known for these kind of viral moments in the European Parliament where he would get up and rail against EU leaders. Uh, the most famous one he called Herman Van Rumpy, who was the president of the European Council at the time. He said he had the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. You have the charisma of a damp rag and the appearance of a low-grade bank clerk. And the question... <laughs> it's pretty good, actually. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 he's pretty good at the burns. He can... Uh, the, the thing about it is, you know, it's always... UKIP was never able to bring Britain out of the EU from Brussels. They had to do it from London, and that proved more difficult. Uh, Farage ran for parliament of the UK five times and lost every time. So they, they've had less success domestically in British elections. But what they did was because of their growing appeal, they pushed the Conservative Party, uh, the center-right party in Britain, to adopt their position on the Europe, basically. So it, you really can't tell the story of Brexit and David, former Prime Minister David Cameron and the Conservative Party you know, coming to support the original referendum uh, without talking about Farage and the rise of UKIP. But why? Like, why did that work? Because it seems to me Farage was over in Brussels kind of doing his thing. And this is always a protest vote, as you're saying, this European Union vote. So why did it move the domestic politics further to the right? I think there was a sense that a lot of conservative voters agreed with UKIP's policies. A lot of conservative MPs probably did, too. It, I think that, you know, he made this issue of leaving Europe a lot more salient and sort of forced the conservatives to define a position on it. I, I mean, cynically, I'd say the conservative position 
for a long time was to blame Europe for a lot of stuff. But, you know, when it push came to shove, they weren't going to actually pull Britain out of the EU. They, they weren't going to go that far. So, you know, the, he kind of forced them to ask the question. And when it came down to it, a lot more people supported uh, uh, leaving the EU than, than sort of mainstream politicians realized. A few months back, Nigel Farage quit UKIP and created his own political party, the Brexit Party. Within the last few weeks, he started fielding candidates for European Parliament. And this weekend, the Brexit Party won nearly a third of the British vote. So it's interesting because at the same time the EU elections were going on, a lot was, of course, happening domestically in the UK. And it's kind of exactly what you're talking about here, which is, you know, the conversations echoing each other. You know, Theresa May obviously resigned at the end of last week. Right. Theresa May resigned on Friday, which was a- which was after the British had voted in the EU elections, but actually before the results were announced. Theresa May has been trying for the better part of three years to sort of reach a compromise that will allow Britain to leave the EU but maintain some kind of economic relationship with it. She hasn't been able to win the kind of hardline Brexiteers in her own party. She hasn't been able to get them to support the deal she negotiated. After that failed, she tried to negotiate uh, with the Labour Party, try and get a, you know, enough votes from Labour that they could do a kind of cross-party partnership. That didn't work either. Last week, she wanted to make a one last ditch effort. She put together this platform to, you know, of, of kind of add-ons to the deal she negotiated, uh, which included, you know, having Parliament vote on whether to hold a second public referendum on Brexit, which is a serious red line for a lot of people in her party. A lot of members of her cabinet uh, would never support that. And after that was sort of firmly rejected by basically everyone, she had, didn't have any choice but to resign, uh, which she did last Friday. So Theresa May is out. What is the timeline for whatever happens next? So she's going to resign as head of the Conservative Party on June 7th, which means she will be around for Donald Trump's visit this week. But, um, you know, pretty soon she's going to be stepping down and and that's going to set off uh, the contest to replace her. Basically, the members of parliament will sort of whittle a list of candidates down to two who party members will then uh, select Right now, the early favorite is Boris Johnson. He's the former mayor of London, former foreign minister. He resigned from May's cabinet over her stance on Brexit. He kind of represents the hard Brexit wing. He, he says he'd be okay with the UK leading without a deal, but he's going to try and negotiate with it. Um, and I think the idea behind Boris Johnson is like they need a populist to fight populism, that to you know, counter the appeal of Nigel Farage and also of Jeremy Corbyn, the kind of far left new leader of the Labour Party. They need somebody who has that kind of uh, outspoken folksy style, uh, which Boris Johnson has. Uh, that said, you know, he has a lot. There's a lot of people in uh, senior ranks of the Conservative Party who are the ones who are going to pick who the candidates are. Uh, he rubs a lot of them the wrong way. And uh, there are a lot of people who really dislike Boris Johnson. So uh, I I wouldn't assume right now that it's going to be him, although uh, you have to say he's the early favorite. And you can really feel the fear of Boris Johnson in some corners because he's messy. You don't know what he's going to say. Right. And he's a bit of a chameleon, too. I mean, I, I, I interviewed Boris Johnson in 2014 when he was in Washington. And, you know, we we talked about leaving the European Union at that point. And what he told me then was, 
uh, and there's a quote, we may want to change our relationship a bit, but fundamentally we will remain within the European common market. So that's a very different tune than Boris Johnson is uh, singing right now. Amber Rudd, the former Home Secretary, uh, had a great quote about him. She said he's he's the life and soul of the party, but not the man you want driving you home at the end of the evening. So I think that kind of sums up a lot of how a lot of conservative party leaders feel about him, that they sort of like, that he has this kind of populist style and and that he sort of has he's a lot more exciting than than a lot of people in the party but uh, they fundamentally don't trust him they, they think he'll change his opinions on a dime and that he's not someone they actually want in control of the party yeah or the country <laughs> I mean I read one op-ed that basically said if you think choosing Boris Johnson is going to help you just remember, what happened to the Republicans in the United States, basically, saying, like, we've seen this show before. You think he's going to tune it down once he has the wheel, but that may not be how this story goes. Right. And it's important. And it's I mean, the complicating factor in this is that whatever stance they come up with, they have to negotiate it with Europe, too. So, hmm. yeah, people in Brussels actually want to negotiate with Boris Johnson. They say they will not. Um, the message from EU leaders is that the deal they negotiated with Theresa May is the deal. They won't reopen talks. Will they really? Who knows? And I think the question going forward is a lot of these kind of hard Brexiteers, people like Boris Johnson or like Dominic Robb, uh, one of his competitors, the former Brexitary, Brexit secretary, you know, they say they're okay with a no-deal Brexit, but are they really? I mean, Theresa May at one point said she was too, but that was clearly, you know, then when her bluff was called, uh, she clearly wasn't to the point that she was willing to negotiate with Labor to avoid a no-deal Brexit. So is Boris Johnson really okay with risking that, or is this just a negotiating tactic he's going to try to use to get a better deal from Brussels? Uh, we don't really know right now. And Brexit is about to hit more deadlines in the fall, right? Yeah, October 31st, Halloween Day is the next spooky is yeah, is the next Brexit deadline. Um so in theory, if they haven't worked out a deal by then, uh Britain will crash out of the European Union, uh deal or no deal. Uh we've heard that before naturally. Uh and there there's a possibility that a new prime minister could ask for a new extension. Uh the thing to keep in mind is whoever it is is not going to have a lot of time. Theresa May is going to be is going to step down as head of the Conservative Party on June seventh, and then you know there's going to be several rounds of selection to find her replacement, which means that the new prime minister is not going to be in place until near the end of July. So that's not going to give them an awful lot of time to renegotiate an agreement that no one really wants to negotiate on that they've already spent years talking about without uh, much progress. So there's a good chance that um, we, we could be seeing yet another extension in the fall. So what are these EU elections that we got the results of this weekend? What does that mean for what's going to happen domestically in the UK. You know, we saw on Sunday a lot of Brexit party folks gaining some more traction in the European Union. What, how will that echo back domestically in the UK? Yeah, it's hard. I mean, the, the message is pretty obvious, but it doesn't really provide much of a way out. Um, basically, the parties that have an un, unambiguous, clear stance on Brexit did really well. The Brexit party got the most votes, about 31.6%, which gives them 29 seats. But if you add up the sort of pro-Remain parties, which is the Liberal Democrats, uh, the Green Party, the Scottish National Party, 
played Cymru, which is the Welsh Nationalist Party, they all are firmly remain and back a second referendum. If you add up all those votes, they actually got more than the Brexit party. So the parties that really suffered are, you know, the Conservatives and Labour Party, the two center-right and center-left parties, which are both trying to sort of in the middle and have more ambiguous stances, and it's not really clear where they stand on Brexit. So basically, there's a lot of people in Britain who want to get out uh, as quickly as possible, as cleanly as possible. There's a lot of people who just want to reverse Brexit. Then there's the sort of parties in the middle trying to forge a compromise that no one really wants. So that's not really helpful as far as finding a path forward. Yeah, it's funny because you said how in the UK, it was sort of everyone was picking their headline from the election results. You know, the pro-Brexit folks were saying, look how well we did. And the Remainers were saying something similar. And it feels like that's what happened in Europe more generally, too, where there was a fear among some people that there would be this surge of populism. And that didn't quite come to fruition. But it was kind of a mixed bag, the results. It was definitely a mixed bag. I mean, if you look at France, Marine Le Pen's far-right party, which is called, is now, used to be called the National Front, now it's called National Rally, um, got more votes than Emmanuel Macron's liberal party. But, you know, they, they actually underperformed their polls a little bit. Uh, and it's pretty clear from these results, they still don't have enough support to win a national election. So, you know, both sides can kind of take comfort in something and and bolster their own narrative. I mean, in the UK, one result we've already seen is Jeremy Corbyn, since this happened, has come out much more unambiguously in favor of a new referendum. So I think it's, you know, the Labour Party, which had been kind of wishy-washy on this about whether they want to have another Brexit vote, um, they are basically committed to it now. Um, whether that means it'll happen is another is another story. Yeah, the bottom line, I guess, is clear evidence that people are pissed off. People are pissed off and they want parties with sort of clear, simple messages, not these kind of amorphous, centrist, uh, big tent parties. Um, and that's something that uh, held across the EU. Um, I mean, that that obviously makes it harder to reach any kind of uh, consensus on a lot of the major issues uh, facing Europe. I mean, it just seems anathema to the whole project of a European Union, because as you were describing how the European Union parliamentary elections work, I was just imagining being a politician in the UK and having to manage all of these parliaments. I mean, it's two, but it's it's enough. Yeah. And so the idea of people wanting something simpler, I get it, but it seems like it, there's no way for them there to be something simpler and for there to actually be cooperation among all these nations. Right. I mean, if you think about the difficulties of reaching consensus on these issues in just one country, and now you have various parties from 28 different countries with vastly different political cultures and political systems and and histories uh, all trying to reach sort of consensus on these issues, uh, you can imagine the kind of headaches that that uh, presents. I mean, I think one key thing to keep in mind about Brexit is it's really seeing what's happened in the UK since the referendum has dampened the enthusiasm for leaving the EU uh, in other countries. So even these sort of far-right populist parties running in France and Italy and, and you know Germany and Netherlands and everywhere else, which once favored their own exits 
exit, Frexit, Grexit, whatever you want to call it. <laughs> they don't talk about that stuff anymore. Uh, that's not really part of the party platform of, of any other party in Europe. Um, so now the message is much more, let's reform it from within. Let's you know have more guarantees for national sovereignty, more controls on immigration. Um, you know, let, let's keep Brussels out of our business. But I think just seeing uh, what Britain has gone through trying to leave the EU outright, there's not really much, uh, much support for that message anymore. I think that what we're going to see going forward is a kind of fight over the soul of Europe, over what the EU represents, uh, rather than trying to pick it apart. Josh Keating, thank you so much for walking me through it. Thank you. Anytime. Josh Keating covers the world for Slate. Okay, that's the show. If you haven't done your good deed for the day, now is your chance. Log on to Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating, leave us a review. It helps people find the show. It also helps us look good to our bosses. That is not a small thing. If you've already done this, Thank you so much. What Next is produced by Mary Wilson, Jason DeLeon, and Ethan Brooks, and it's hosted by me, Mary Harris. All right, talk to you tomorrow.